Pandemonium, a podcast where I, your host, Mandy, talk to guests about their favorite works of fiction, whether that be books, movies, TV shows, or more. Today, I'll be talking to Rachel Delaney about episode one of the Netflix horror show, Midnight Mass. note real quick before we get started. Um, when I recorded this episode with Rachel, uh, we were in the same room sharing a microphone. Uh, I, uh, Since Rachel was my guest, I pointed uh, the better side of the microphone towards her, and I thought I had balanced the gain so it would pick up from both sides. And it does, but Rachel definitely comes through clearer. I've tried my best in editing to balance that out, but I apologize uh, for any unbalances in that, and we will definitely get better on that in the future. Uh, another note, my husband is doing minor construction in the background. Uh, he knew we were podcasting, um, but uh, we had a room that we were remodeling that is actually my new podcast uh, room. So future episodes will not have that sound in the background, and uh, things will be much quieter in my new beautiful podcasting room that my husband made for me. So thank you, Trevor. Uh, and with that, we'll get on with the episode. All right. Today on the podcast, we have with us Rachel uh, and we are discussing Midnight Mass. Rachel, why did you pick Midnight Mass as the topic of discussion for today? So um, I really like Midnight Mass. Um, I really like a lot of Mike Flanagan's stuff. Um I started off with Haunting of Hill House, which I probably would not have watched if it wasn't for you, Mandy, because you came in and said, like, you need to watch this. And so uh, I actually binged it one Halloween because I wanted to see something spooky. And since you had said it was good and then I was hooked, like I I absolutely loved it. And so the same thing kind of happened with the Midnight Mass because you came into work and I said and you said, Rachel, I need you to watch the show because we need to talk about it. And so um uh, I was like, okay, well, that was a correct assumption with Haunting of Hill House, so I will definitely be watching this. And yeah, I was hooked after the first episode. And one of the things I find particularly um, engaging about Midnight Mass is the um, the way they portray faith and different types of faith. And so I think that adds like a whole other layer to that to that show worth talking about. And so that's why I think we should talk about it today. Excellent. So I will say that we are we are going to go in deep uh, into the show. We're probably going to do uh, a, a podcast episode per episode of the show because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, if you want to hear Maya Rachel's kind of overarching thoughts on Midnight Mass, we actually did an episode on Hugo's There podcast. Uh, so definitely check that out. There's a Midnight Mass episode. I will put a link to it in the show notes. I, but today, what we really want to do is dive into kind of the show, uh, the themes, the buildup, uh, and also a lot of the theology. Uh, Rachel and I are both Christians. We, uh, uh, we're Protestants, which is unfortunate for the show because it's a Catholic show. Right. Uh, we don't think that's unfortunate in real life, but uh, <laughs> for the sake of, you know. It has the, perspective that we don't have. Yes, so. the, we'll be coming at the theology from a Protestant perspective. We really just wanted a chance to kind of dive in. This show is so rich with themes. Like, it is just full of everything. <laughs> but I feel like it's one of those things where every time you watch it, you, you find another layer of that onion to go into and dig around in. Yeah, so that is to say that this is going to be completely spoilerific. Uh, so there's no like there's no going to be not a non-spoiler section of this. We are just diving straight in. If you want to know our non-spoiler opinion, it's that you should watch it. Would you concur with that? Uh, yes. <laughs> Before we dive completely into spoilers, uh, just a horror. Uh, Rachel, do you consider yourself a horror fan? Uh, I like good storytelling, and if there's a, a bit of a horror to that, then that's good. But I. I'm not going to go out and find like slasher films to watch or anything super gory. But one thing I really like about Flanagan is that his, he's got good storytelling. There's like fear in there as well and horror aspects, but um, the storytelling is so captivating. It's like, Oh yeah, no, this is, this is what makes it really good. Yeah. So I, uh, I am a, I'm a pretty big horror fan. And for those of you who listen to Trivially Crucial, uh, Michael is not, so I never get a chance to talk about horror. So I am happy to have Rachel on uh, to talk about something uh, that is tangentially horror, though uh, I know lots of people who have watched this who don't like horror and like this show. 
So that is to say that if you're on the fence, uh, I think you should give it a try. Watch the first episode and see uh, see what you think. I will say the last few episodes are a lot more gory than the rest of the series. So just be aware of that. Yeah, but I don't find them scary. I don't We'll, we'll get to that when we get there. Yeah. Because it, uh, it, it's just different. It's different. Um, usually I like to say that I like horror where the uh, family unit or community or whatever it is learns a lesson and comes out better. And this is definitely a weird type of show when you're talking about that. <laughs> but yeah. we'll talk about that more when we get to the last episode because uh, – yeah, we're going to start with episode one. Uh, so, spoilers abound from this point on. Uh, Midnight Mass, episode one, opens with a Jesus fish. Mm-hmm. And police lights just reflecting on it. So it kind of tells you right there that this show, I mean, it's in the title, right? Yeah. Mass. Uh, but this show is definitely going to have uh, religious and we are introduced to Riley. How do you want to start about Riley? I mean, so he's been in an accident and um, there's a girl on the asphalt and they are, people are actively working on her um, and he starts praying. Working on her to bring her. Yeah, yeah. She's clearly not responsive. She's very badly injured. There's glass everywhere. And uh, Riley sees it, and um, he's handcuffed on the curb, and he starts praying for her. And I feel like this is when the theme of the show is introduced, like right off the bat, because um, the cop basically tells him, and I don't, I don't swear, so <laughs> this is going to be censored what he says. But um, the cop sees him praying and says, uh, "While you're at it, uh, why don't you ask him why he always takes the kids while the dumb f's walk away with scratches?" Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, that's a consistent theme. Like, why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God allow suffering to happen? And so, like, right out the gate, that gets brought up. And that's what they're going to talk about in the show. Yeah. And we and we learn, you know, through the course of the show, right, that Riley was an alcoholic. Uh, we learned that in the first episode, right? Mm-hmm. And he was drinking and driving. And he hit this girl. And he goes to jail for five years. I think it's four, four, but it's, it's about that. It's that amount of time. And then he's paroled and sent home. Uh, and he says to Aaron in this episode, you know, that he had, uh, he didn't lose his faith immediately. Right. He right. spent all this time looking into everything. Uh, but at the end, it kind of comes back to that question, right. Of the question of suffering and how can he, uh, uh, believe in a God that allows these things to happen that allowed him to live. Right. Cause he basically thinks he should have died there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that the girl Tara Beth should have lived. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a dark, it's a dark place. Yeah. And the, the prayer he prays is Lord's prayer. Uh, so uh, I don't think there's any deeper theological significance to that other than, you know, it's, the thing you go to when you can't think of yeah, what else to pray. Mm-hmm. Right? He gets paroled. He's going to the island. Uh, and on, that's where we're introduced to the whole town that he's from, Crockett Island, with a bunch of fishermen who are all Catholic. Well, not all. Well, not all. <laughs> Bev makes that very clear. <laughs> um, and we're introduced to a bunch of characters. Uh, but staying on the note of his family, you have his mom. You have his dad, you have his brother, Warren, uh, and his mom comes to pick him up uh, at the early morning ferry, uh, but his dad is not there. And you can tell from phone conversations earlier in the episode that his dad is really still struggling with what Riley has done and kind of uh, their relationship. Mm -hmm. And his mom's kind of like the, she's going around kind of like spackling all the cracks and trying to be like, no, 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 we're fine. I mean... Um, I, I see her as very Christ-like in that, or that she welcomes Riley. She doesn't let what, she knows what's right, what Riley has done, but she still welcomes him with open arms. She wants him to feel like he's still part of the family, that he's worthy of love. Cause that's how she sees him. And like the dad obviously does not feel that way. I think he's very, like you said, he's struggling with what Riley's done and 
uh, Riley's mom always like tries to cover up, like when the dad just walks out the door, like <laughs> after he, he clearly has heard her say like, oh, do you want to say hi to your dad? And when, when she's on the phone with Riley before he gets there and you go, okay, I'll get him on the phone. And then like the dad just walks out like, nope, not doing it. And she just lies, lies basically and says, oh, well, you know what? He just walked out and he didn't hear me. So like, I don't like, I don't want you to know that your dad is being this way. I want you to not feel bad because I'm sure you already feel bad as it is. So she's, yeah, like I said, going around kind of like spackling all the cracks, being like, everything's fine. Everything's fine here. And you're loved and you're worthy of being in this family and getting that love from your family. Like you deserve that. So. And then on the other hand, we have Warren, right? He's the younger brother. And there's not a lot. The show doesn't go into him super detail, but I feel like he's in this awkward place because I feel like he doesn't really know Riley that well. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like they're at least 10 years apart in age. Because if you think about Riley had already gone through college, had a job when this accident happened, and then was in jail for four years. So Riley's got to be at least like, what, 26? Probably. And Warren's in high school, somewhere between like 16 and 18, mm -hmm. it seems like. So they're probably 10 years apart, which, you know, means they probably weren't very close to begin with. And now your brother was in jail. Yeah. <laughs> Super awkward. But you can see he's still like, there's that, um, what Riley has done still impacted him because like when he says he's going to go out to the uppers or whatever, like his mom's like, don't drink. And he like, and you find out when he is on the uppers that he never drinks. And so like, he saw what his brother did. He saw what kind of trouble his brother got into. And so that's clearly, and he probably heard his parents fighting about it while Riley was in prison. So he doesn't touch it. So even though they have that huge gap and probably doesn't know his brother very well, he still doesn't, he still takes the lessons learned and applies them to his life. Uh, so I want to go back to, you said that, uh, the, that Riley's mom is like Christ-like and that she's very welcoming. Cause that makes me think of the prodigal son, which right. is mentioned multiple times in this episode. So I kind of wanted to talk about that, but before we do, I want to talk about Aaron. Because both Riley and Aaron are mentioned directly in reference to the prodigal son story. So Aaron is a woman who is Riley's same age. Uh, they went to school together. Uh, so probably, They're clearly friends because he's got pictures of her in prison. Yes. Uh, and uh, she is, uh, they describe it as ran away. Uh, whether that means she graduated high school and then left or, you know. She strikes me as she was a free spirit. Yes. <laughs> uh, it seems like she was on the road with a band, you know, a lot was maybe got into drugs. Uh, definitely was with a guy who was some sort of alcoholic drug user and abusing her. Um, but her mom was also abusive, so she was stuck in a cycle. Right. Mm -hmm. Her mom had abused her and then she ended up with a guy who abused her. Uh, but then uh, now she's back on the island. I don't think we learn yet in this episode how she got away or why she's back on the island. Um, but we do know she's pregnant. Uh, and uh, uh, so people refer to Aaron as the prodigal daughter returned. And then she refers to Riley as the prodigal returned. Uh, and Riley says, you're the prodigal, I'm the black sheep, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's an, I think Riley's point is an interesting point. So I wanted to talk about both of them in reference to the prodigal son story. Um, and to be like, what does it actually mean to be a prodigal? And is either one of them actually really a prodigal, right? Uh, so if you think about the prodigal son story, most, many of you know, Luke 15, right? Uh, you have a father, he has two sons, one of them demands his inheritance and leaves, goes and spends it, you know, has a good life on the town. Uh, and then there's a famine, he's made destitute, uh, he's eating from troughs of pigs, which he was Jewish, so that's super uh, degrading. degrading. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he comes home and he's welcomed with open arms by the father. So... Riley contends that he's not a prodigal, but Aaron doesn't have someone welcoming her with open arms, mm -hmm. but Aaron maybe came back contrite and Riley has it. I, I don't know. I don't know. And I've been thinking about that. Like why, 
why does Riley think he's not like, I think they could both be prodigals, but Riley is very clear. Like he does not think he's the prodigal son. He thinks he's, uh, like a reject from the community. Uh, so. Well, I also think there's a bit of a difference in that Aaron came back to the church, basically. Aaron came back, think like, it's like, I need to get my life straight. And this is, this is what I need to do. Um, Riley, I think begrudgingly came back because he didn't have anything else. And I don't think he's ever like, I don't know. The way he came back is more just kind of like, yeah, I'm here. I'm alive. I shouldn't be, I'm not going to like grab life by the horns and like try and make things better. It's just, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. So in a sense he hasn't, yeah, he's come back home, but he hasn't come back to where he was before he made those decisions. So I don't know. There's a little bit of a difference there between the two of them. Yeah. But did the prodigal son, so when I think about the prodigal son, I don't think he actually, the prodigal son only came back because he was starving. Right. I, so I, you know, he, he didn't think to himself what I did was wrong. Like he didn't like he, he, if you read the story and you read the language, it's really just like, he's like, my father treats his servants better. Yeah, that's true. I'm going to go home, you know? And so uh, Riley literally like the prodigal son has no place else to go. Right. He has nowhere else to go and he has come home. He just doesn't view himself that way. Cause I think, yeah, maybe he's viewing it like you were, where he's like, well, I'm not coming back to the faith and I'm here begrudgingly. But I think the actual prodigal son was home begrudgingly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that there's an actual prop, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the one, the story, the, original the parable, parable son. So yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that both of them are referred to as prodigals. Um, but Riley is accepted by his mom with open arms, mm-hmm. but not his father. Right. Aaron is accepted sort of by the community. <laughs> she's a teacher. Yeah. Uh, but even like when Warren brings up how she's pregnant and his mom like tells him to like hush talking like that, you know, and you're like, she's not done anything sketchy. She, she was, was married. She was married. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I don't even know why, why we think this is sketchy. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why. Like the only thing I could see is possibly like with it being a Catholic community being like, she left her husband like yeah. that. And then she's pregnant. And like, I could see that, but it seems like the thing that triggers Annie Flynn is like, you didn't be, you shouldn't be talking about how she's pregnant. Yes. Like <laughs> she hasn't entered her confinement yet. <laughs> this is the 1950s. You can't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but kind of Aaron and Riley are our two main characters and they are both people who left the Island and came back. So mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting setup for the story, right? Because they are, part of the community, but they are also outsiders to the community in a lot of ways. And a lot of our main, our, a lot of our people we focus on are outsiders to the community. And I think that's interesting because I also think that's a statement on how a lot of us all feel like outsiders in our own community, mm-hmm. right? Like all, all communities are made up of outsiders. We just hang out together. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, because we also have uh, the doctor, Sarah, uh, she's not in this episode too much other than to establish that she's a doctor. She's taking care of her mom. Who has some sort of dementia. dementia. Yeah. I don't know if they say specifically. I think later they talk about her dementia, but I don't think they do it in this episode. Yeah. You just kind of get that impression when she's like, you, you've put me in the wrong room. And it's like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. And she's like. During the storm, she's, like, trying to yeah. go up the stairs. And, and, like, screaming and yeah, doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then we're also introduced to Bev. Uh, and uh, yeah, let, let's go to the, uh, the school meeting. Uh, <laughs> so a storm is coming to the island. Um, and uh, they're trying to prepare for it. And we have a new sheriff. So the sheriff and the mayor and a couple of uh, community leaders, let's say, important people in the community. So that includes the doctor because she's the only doctor mm-hmm. on the island. 
Uh, it includes the two teachers in the school. Uh, <laughs> Most of them are just sitting though. Yeah. Like, they're all sitting there and, um, but it doesn't include like Riley's family. Like no. they're not part of this meeting. Uh, and they're talking about, you know, what to do in the storm, who's got the keys to what, what we're going to, and everybody's just acts like they're, um, tolerating the sheriff, reminding them what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Except then it, Bev. Yes. <laughs> Cause then it comes up of, uh, where are we going to shelter? If something happens and you can't stay in your house. Let's go to the century-year-old church. The sheriff suggests the school, which looks old, but is probably built out of cinder block. Uh, And Bev is like, we always use the church. Uh, And if you watch the show, that church looks rickety. (laughs) Yeah. But I feel like that's, I don't know. This might, we're talking about spoilers over. That, to me, that's her turf. Like, she wants that control. And so it's like, no, 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 not the school. Even though she works at the school, so she could technically, like, own the school too. But, like, the church, for some reason, I think is her, like, purview. And so she's like, yo, everybody goes there. Like, she wants that power over everyone. She wants that control and that feeling of, oh, yeah, you all. Like, and it might even be because if it got bad enough where they did have to go there, she could be like, I saved you all. Like, if it wasn't for me, like, all like you'd all be homeless like but i let you like i took care of you in the church and that gives her like more power over the community i think that's really i never thought about that but i think you're right it's like she wants to be their savior Mm -hmm. she wants yeah which i mean the whole episode like especially near the end and you realize like that's how she sees herself or she wants to be seen she wants to be their savior basically Yeah. yeah Like, through the whole show. Mm-hmm. Like, she she doesn't want people to rely on God. She wants people to rely on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wants... I mean, she doesn't even rely on God, so... No, no, not not at all. And it's also where we're introduced to the concept of the rec center, uh, which we'll talk more about in episode two. But uh, she talks about how it's new and it's almost done and it can hold twice as many people. And the sheriff is like, there are 127 people on this island. 40 people's not going to cut it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you can see the angst on everyone's face in school when she mentions the rec center too. So you can tell that there's a story behind it Mm -hmm. because they all kind of like groan and like, like, I mean, not audibly, but you can see them like roll their eyes and kind of like shift in their seats. Like, Oh yeah. The rec, that rec center. Yeah. Let's talk about that. This is also where we get digs at the sheriff for not only not being Catholic, but being Muslim. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, how dare he? Which we have, we've talked about this outside of the podcast, but we have questions. <laughs> more when we get to the episode where he explains why he's on the island and it makes no sense. But uh, I have a lot of questions about why the sheriff is on this island. Um, so yeah, you set up this antagonism, right? Of like the sheriff on one side and Bev on the other. And you have the mayor, who at this point is trying to be friends with both and trying Mm -hmm. to bridge a gap. But we're going to see at one point that the mayor is just going to make his allegiances quite clear later Mm -hmm. in the series. But for now, he's trying to be an olive branch. But you can also tell that he is 100% on Bev's side. Whenever she says anything, he just, like, nods. Well, I don't know. I I don't know if he's necessarily on her side. I just feel like... He knows his life is going to be miserable if he, like, doesn't support her and what she uh, wants. Yeah. I don't That's know. Fair. I've, like, dealing with difficult people sometimes in everyday life, it's like, yeah, I think a lot of times, like, when you're in a situation like that where you have someone who is super opinionated or super particular about certain things, a lot of people, like, to keep the peace, they'll just be like, yep, whatever they want, like, just so I don't have to deal with this. Like, so I feel like that's kind of what the mayor is like. I don't know. I think... His allegiances do, I don't know, they become more, like, founded later in, the, later in the series for different reasons. But I think at this point, he mostly just agrees with Bev because he doesn't want to have to deal with uh, church Karen. <laughs> <laughs> they should have just named her Karen. I don't, I don't know. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then speaking of the sheriff, earlier in the episode, we are actually introduced to his son before we're introduced to him. Uh, When uh, Warren leaves the house, heads to the boats, uh, meets up with his friend, uh, 
and uh, also meets up with Ollie, uh, which is the sheriff's son. And we see, I feel like this scene with the sheriff's son and the weed and bull, uh, a guy named Bull, at marijuana weed, not just. <laughs> Isn't his name like, is it Bill? Actually, he has a real name. Yeah, he does. And they just call him Bull. His mom says it later in the series, like, yeah. that she's extremely offended by this nickname. But yeah, I would be. <laughs> but, you know, I also know a guy at work who's known as Weed. So I don't know. <laughs> what can you do? I feel like this scene with Ali where, you know, the I and I never remember the other altar boys name. I can't either. Uh, but you have Warren and you have the other altar boy and you have Ali. And the other altar boy is like, I can't believe you invited Aladdin because he's racist. And, uh, <laughs> uh, well, they're on an island where, like, there isn't a lot of diversity. So not even religious diversity. Apparently. No, everyone no. is Catholic. You, they're all they're Catholic, or they're like they just don't practice anything. Like yeah. that's that's really the like setup on the island. Yeah, but uh, Ali to fit in, it basically says like, "What do you want me to say?" Like, and I don't curse. But he's like. F my dad, you know. Is that what you want? Yeah. And I get, I feel like this is really good. Once again, to go with the storytelling, but this is really good character building because it tells the audience, this kid is desperate to fit in. He will do anything to find a community that he can fit into. So like, and you definitely see that as the series goes on and explains a lot of the decisions that he makes, but like right out, right. Our first introduction to him is, him basically like bad mouthing his dad to fit in with these these other boys. Yeah, his dad who he likes. Yeah. Because I mean, throughout the show, almost every scene we see with Ollie and his dad is like super respectful, even when they're disagreeing. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, so he likes his dad, but he's willing to throw his dad completely under the bus if it gets him in with these boys. I mean, he's a teenage boy with like no friends. So. Yes. Yeah. And, and no one like him on the island, which leads us to our questions. But why the sheriff moved here? <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, they take their weed and they go to the Uppers, which is another island, uh, and smoke it. And there's cats and maybe a vampire. But, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that scene with them and the bull in that discussion is also where we first see father at the time paul Mm -hmm. hill yeah paul hill that's (laughs) what he calls himself in the first episode uh and we reveal the uh the trunk Uh, rachel did you want to say something about the music (laughs) so one thing i noticed last night when i was watching the episode is the the cello is the vampire i mean i think the cello is the vampire's instrument and it's motif where they're just like that one little bong noise that it makes and you hear it. So like, I thought you first heard it on the upwards, like when Warren's got the flashlight and he's looking around and then he sees the vampire in the bushes and you hear that thunk, like that little, whatever, pluck, whatever yeah. it is. And like, so that noise and that noise like haunted me for like, <laughs> for a while after I first saw the series, like if I went outside at night, like, that would play in the back. I'm like, oh, I have to get inside now. But um, you actually hear it for the first time um, at the ferry when you see Father Paul, which you don't know it's Father Paul until like later in the episode, but he's standing there next to a trunk and you hear that cello pluck. And I'm just like, oh, there it is. Like, I thought it was on that first, but no, it's too, like our first introduction to it. It's right there. So yeah, you see him and you see his large suitcase what do we call that trunk i think it's a trunk like i called it a chest and i was like it's not really a chest it's a it's a it's a trunk a trunk of vampire uh, as we later <laughs> learn yeah and bev was there to meet him as well uh no she went to the later no period. he came a day early he came early that's right because he came on the same ferry as riley mm-hmm. um so bev is not there and he goes straight uh to the church the rectory i guess and that'd be where he yes yeah i feel he- like I think that's where the like pastor, the priest lives next to the church. Or you can call it a parsonage. Uh, it's probably, maybe rectory is like a Protestant name for it. I don't know. I don't know. No, because I've heard it called parsonage. And 
not. I think it, I, I wonder if one of them is technically attached to the church and one of them's not, but Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I just learned that term from Adventures in Odyssey. So <laughs> <laughs> oh. I was like, oh, so that's where the, the, the pastor lives. Okay. <laughs> he lives like literally on the church property. Yeah. It's like he can walk. He has a cute little house. Yeah. Walk right across the door. church. I mean, he doesn't need a lot of space. He's a Catholic priest. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't dun, have a TV. Uh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> Bev can just walk in whenever she feels like it. He doesn't have a TV. No. Could you just... imagine if you were like a real new priest showing up to this church and you go into the parsonage and there's no TV? Like, you're like, there's no TV? It's like, I'm surprised it has electricity, to be honest. There's probably like... no internet. <laughs> no cell signal. Do we ever... Oh, no, they do have cell signal because yes. they have an antenna. But do we ever see Father Pruitt use a phone like a cell phone ever no i don't think he knows how but like uh, i mean everyone I mean, spoilers knows. and everything but like this really doesn't surprise me like you know how like sometimes technology and people don't get along as they get older he probably but like, also everyone he knows is on the island that's true and i'm sure there's a landline in the parsonage for like the church to call him mm-hmm. like whoever he answers to because presumably yeah. he has a or bev just goes in and tells him Oh, yeah, they call Bev. <laughs> She's like the high priestess going into like the Holy of Holies. Bev, Bev way too much. Way too much power. Uh, so we have this new young priest, new in quotation marks. Uh, spoilers. Spoilers. Uh, he's not new. Um, he's very not new. Uh, but everyone's expecting the old guy, uh, the old pastor, who is also an old guy. Uh, uh, so Bev goes to meet him at the later ferry. He's not there. She She's gets mad. mad. <laughs> it's like, she gets mad at like the fairy guy. Like, why did you let him off the boat? And he's like, I, I didn't see him. You think I wouldn't see an 80 year old man wandering around my boat? I also find it interesting. Cause like when they're talking about it, at the din- when the Flynn's are talking about it at the dinner table and they're like, oh yeah, he's on a trip to the Holy Land. And really it's like, you let an old man go to the Holy Land? Like, what is wrong with you guys? Like, I kind of wonder, too, this thought came to me last night. Do you think Bev arranged the pilgrimage to the Holy Land? Like, huh. I mean, that makes it seem more sinister than I think maybe it is. But I don't know. I don't know. Like, do you think, because he said, we all rounded, like, we all pitched in. And I'm like, it sounds very similar to the rec center thing that they all pitched in. But, like, why would, who, like, I, I was trying to think of the island group. And I was like, who on this island? Because I know it wasn't Father Pruitt who was like, I want to go to Israel. Like, who on the island? To the Holy Land. Yeah. Who on the island was like, oh, there's this pilgrimage to the Holy Land. We should do this for Father Pruitt. And the only person I could come up with was Bev. Like, she's the only one I could see doing that. And then, like, knowing who she is. But she wanted to get rid of him for, like, two yeah. weeks, maybe. So she could, like, because, I mean, she's basically running a place anyway. Yeah. And maybe he dies out there. Who knows? Like, well, I have a lot of questions, and we'll get to this when we get to that episode. But I have a lot of questions my, about this Holy Land trip. So. My conspiracy theory that I came up with last night when it comes to the show. But there, there will be a whole episode that focuses on the Holy Land trip because I find the whole trip very questionable. And at some point, you just have to accept that it yeah. happened, and that the church apparently has no checks and balances for people's health, or you know, or like, uh, <laughs> like I, you know, and what happened like with customs, like and. <laughs> Regardless of your feelings about the Catholic Church that anyone has, I think we can all agree that they're probably very good at bureaucracy and paperwork and keeping track of their people physically. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. There's a whole episode about that. Um, So, you know, going back to the idea that Bev's collecting all this money. So we see her fixing up the sign for mass the next day, which may or may not be happening at this point. Because who knows where Father Pruitt uh, is? Yes. Uh, and uh, they don't have, like, A's. Yeah. She's that, using fours. Yeah, like, that really bugs me, too. I'm like, okay, so you can buy this rec center, but you can't buy A's for the board? You have to use the number four? Like, this like, makes no sense. Those things probably cost 20 bucks. Like, <laughs> I, Spend a hundred dollars for a nice set, right? Like the, you saved money for the rec center and you saved money for the Holy land trip. We can't buy letters for our board. Everything in the church is very nice too. Like I was noticing that like it's old, but like it's all in very good condition and they have an organ, which like 
is impressive to me. I mean, I think it's only an electric organ. Yeah, but still, like, everything in there is a very nice shape for it being as old and as, like, dying as the community is. Like, everything in there is very well taken care of. Well, because I think despite what Bev thinks, uh, people in the community do attend the church and they do love the church. And Bev is super judgmental of the fact that, I think this is in this episode, that people don't come to morning mass every morning. Uh, that might be it. I think it might be a later one. Cause I think I remember her saying it like, I don't know if it was Lent or like Ash Wednesday. I think right. that's I when think she says it. Too. Yeah. But it's like, this is a community of fishermen. They're literally out fishing every morning. Mm-hmm. Like if you really wanted to have a morning mass that your fishermen could attend, you would have to have it at like three in the morning. Yes. <laughs> so Bev would have to get up at three in the morning. She doesn't want to do that. She <laughs> has a teacher job, which in this community, when you're just walking to the school, there's no commute, right? No. Like you just walk across the street to the church and then across the street to the school. So it's super easy for her to do both, right? No way she's getting up at three in the morning. No. Uh, but the, okay. So the verse she's putting on the board is Genesis 1-3, uh, which is basically like, let there be light. Uh, which I don't know. Thematically, doesn't I feel like go very well with this episode? <laughs> Other than the episode's called Genesis. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that verse has any deeper meaning in this episode? I don't know. Oh, that was one of the other things I was going to do. I watched this to try and figure out where, because I have a theory that each episode calls out um, a, a verse from the episode it's named after. Right. I didn't, I forgot to do it. This yeah. Time, so this but... one's Genesis one, three, which is, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. So it's literally just that verse. And she puts it on the board and that's what it says. Uh, now I also know that in the Catholic church, uh, and actually not just Catholic churches in a lot of churches, there's like a, um, a liturgy and they do like certain verses at certain times of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it's like a three year cycle that they yeah, go through. I don't know. Um, so Right. So that's why she didn't have to know what the sermon was going to be. Like she didn't have to talk to Father Pruitt. Yeah. She could just but she just knew. And, and lection, lectionaries? I don't know. There's I mean, a word for it. Uh, yeah. I was trying to think like, how does this relate to what's happening in this episode? Let there be like, if it I, does. I don't know. I almost wonder if it's foreshadowing for the end. Mm. With the cats? No, not the end of the episode, the end of the series. Oh, oh. <laughs> That would make more sense yeah. than the cats. Uh, could be. Could be. I Like, because next episode, which we'll talk about in next episode, has a lot of, like, really meaty, like, first stuff in it, which we'll get to. But yeah. this one's a lot lighter because Father Pruitt's not in it that much and Bev isn't throwing verses at people. Yeah. Because it gets way, <laughs> like, for the last podcast that we did, I had a whole, like, running tally of, like, verses out of context. And, like, the first few episodes... There weren't, like, really any. But, like, as you get close, like, farther along in the series, I'm like, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is not what that meant. Have Like, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So the first couple episodes are pretty tame when it comes to yes. uh, Bible verse use. <laughs> so Father Pruitt, uh, Bev realizes he's there. Sorry, at this point, he's Father Paul. Bev realizes she, he's well, there. Well, she finds there's someone else in the rectory or she sees like there's a fire yeah. or something, right? Um, she assumes it's him because she just lets herself in and then... I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> there's that and like I have questions about like what? Knowing who Father Paul actually is like, I mean, because she just goes and she just rambles on stuff and some of the stuff that she says are not. it's not good. It's, it's not, not nice. nice. No. It's not... <laughs> pleasing to God in my opinion and like she just says it so it's like was like did Father Pruitt just like not listen to anything that she said like because she's clearly used to talking like this in well front I of think him. Father Pruitt clearly we know later had some sort of dementia mm-hmm. right I also think that he knew all these people their whole lives so in his eyes Bev is probably 12 <laughs> right probably like and so it's like yeah a 12 year old comes in saying some bad gossip you're just like oh Pat them on Little the Little children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he had hearing problems. Maybe he didn't always hear what she was babbling yeah. about. But I would think that... She's always got a little smirk on her face. Yeah. I would think as Father Hill, 
maybe he he may not even been processing what she was saying because he may have just been panicking at that point. Someone's in the house. Someone like he was like be like, oh my gosh, Bev is here. She's gonna see me. Am I prepared for this? What am I gonna say? Um, so I would not be surprised if he's just not processing and not thinking about her at all, which probably doesn't make her feel good. <laughs> I don't think she even like processed that. <laughs> well, I think she was, I think shocked. she was shocked that there's this young man in this house that belongs to this old man, young man. He's like 40, but well, young <laughs> relatively to like half the age of the original, uh, father Pruitt. Yeah. And so if I was father Pruitt at that point, I would ask for my keys back. There's no reason she needs to be going in there. If there's like, a <laughs> right. Like it's if like, I, if I was new, like there's, if you are a new priest to the community, I feel like there's no way you would let this random woman, you don't know have a key to your house. So the only reason to allow her to have a key is because you're not a new priest. You're an old priest who yeah. already knows her, but still you should be like, maybe, maybe because I have a vampire friend who's coming back and forth to meet me, you shouldn't have a key to my house. Cause maybe I occasionally want to lock the door when the vampire friend is here. Yeah. So nobody gets hurt. <laughs> As we'll see in another episode, what happens when you stumble upon the vampire friend. Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, they do have a sermon the next day. Everybody's shocked by Father Paul when he shows up and you can like, they fall silent while they're singing as he like walks yeah. past them. I was like, calm down. But then I'm like, well, I guess it's such a small community and people don't just show up usually two new people in one day i know (laughs) things are changing (laughs) and i do think it's interesting when we talk about setup for the whole show right we don't really get his homily sermon right what we get is communion yeah because that is and and talking particularly about like you know this is my blood yeah i feel like they focused way more on that part of communion like it's like oh yeah he did the bread okay fine but like the camera angles and everything for the blood, like how, like, cause the bread, you just kind of see him pray for it and he puts it down on the plate or whatever. But like the cup, he like, he lifts it up, which I'm sure they do anyway. But like the camera angles, like they, from the top, it. like look at what's in the cup, which it's like, of course you're like, of course, like it's wine. It's, wine. <laughs> it's the cup. Like that's important. But knowing what he's doing to the cup, it's like, Oh, okay. I see why you're, focusing on that yeah it's like super for i noticed that this time too mm-hmm. i was like yeah did we even do the bread like, yeah i was like, like <laughs> i was like oh they didn't spend this much time on the bread like apparently they're only doing communion wine yeah in this church uh no bread uh so yeah a lot of emphasis on blood though i i it's we don't have our catholic uh expert here with us i was wondering like they have all these hymns in the episode, but they're like, um, faith of our father, things like that. I was like, if this was a Protestant version of this, you know what hymns they'd be singing? There's power in the blood. Yes. <laughs> Nothing but the blood. But I was like, maybe those aren't Catholic hymns. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I grew up Southern Baptist, so those are definitely the hymns. And it's not power in the blood, it's power. Power. <laughs> uh, they Slightly tangential, but <laughs> Selah has a hymn uh, CD that they do, and they sing like "Power," and they and I'm like, no, purr, <laughs> not power, it's power. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, that's tangential. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was surprised there are no blood hymns in like the whole show. I think um, I don't think I'll have to pay attention and see. There's definitely not in this episode. Yeah, no, not in this uh, episode. Which is like, they're not being too on the nose, I guess. Right. Uh, And all the episodes, sorry, all the episodes, all the hymns in this episode are about like abiding in God and things like that, Uh, which is, I would say, in the end, the moral of the show, kind of, which we'll get to on the last episode, right? Like, because in the end, it's like being at peace, knowing God's with you in a moment and like that has to be enough and it's not about anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just thought that was interesting. I was like, we need some good old power and blood up in here, but 
Father Hill gets called out for using the wrong chasuble. Chasuble. And afterwards, complimented, not called out, but for using the old translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, emphasizing he's an old guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I feel like that is a very, like, Christian thing. Like, be like, oh, it was so nice to hear, like, the classic stuff. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like I get that. And I, I could even be that way. Like if we're in like worship or whatever, and they throw in like count thy or come thy fount every blessing. I'm like, oh, and I'll like be uh, with my fiance. You're like, this is a, like, they're playing an old hymn. This is great. Like, <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, this is a very believable situation where they're like, you did like, it was so nice to hear like the old stuff. Like, or it's like when you bring your Bible to church and for once the pastor uses your translation yes. and you're like, oh, I, don't, I don't have to like figure out where in the verse we are while I'm following along. I will say, I think, I, I mean, I know Flanagan was a Catholic growing up. And so like, I think he does really capture that like Christian like feel like uh, I kind of mentioned too, this was at the beginning of the episode, but in my notes, the Bible verse that um, Annie sends with the Bible to oh, yeah. Riley that it's about it was about Joseph being in prison and finding favor with the guard. And I'm like, oh, this is such like this would happen. Like this is so believable. I could easily see a mother sending this to her son or her kid who is like put in prison like for encouragement. And I'm like, this is I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> and we totally skipped over that. So I'm glad you brought it up because when talking about verses being taken out of context, like I feel like there's two ways to do it. And Annie and Bev are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Like Annie takes a story about Joseph, a verse kind of out of context and sends it to her son to comfort him. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the benign version of taking something out. of. Like you can always take something out of the Bible to comfort yourself. And I'm not going to judge you for that. Right. right? Even though it annoys me. If Jeremiah 29, 11 (laughs) brings you peace, uh, I'm not going to take that from you you're wrong but i'm not going to take it from you i will admit uh, that was the bible verse i had next to my picture in my senior <laughs> spot on my yearbook because like it did a- bring me comfort but i understand that that's not the context of that verse <laughs> uh, for those of you playing along at home jeremiah 29 11 is uh, for i know the plans i have made for you says the lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you this is not a promise to modern christians this was a promise in a very particular time to the Jewish nation, which didn't even apply to individuals. <laughs> it applied to the nation because some individuals, in fact, came to harm. <laughs> so uh, God was telling the nation he was going to bring them all out okay in the end. But so that is what Annie's doing, right? Because the story of Joseph and the story of Riley are not the same. No. Riley was not wrongfully accused. And he knows that. He knows. And growing up, being as involved in the church as he was, like, he he knows that. So I think Annie was trying to comfort him by giving him this verse, but instead, probably all it did was make him feel worse. But I could also see where she's coming from in that. Oh, I don't judge her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if, like, like, even though this is a situation where he was, like, just fully put into prison, like you can still find favor in whatever situation you find yourself in. I feel like the story of David might be more applicable to Riley. Yeah. That makes more sense. Something wrong. And if you repent, like, but David was never in prison. And so it's a little less on the nose. (laughs) Uh, So yeah. Whereas Bev does the thing that's more harmful, which is she wields verses out of context to control people. Yes. Yes. Uh, And she doesn't do that in this episode. But it's coming. <laughs> yeah, you, she. That's her favorite thing to do. I'm like, wow, this woman knows more Bible verses than I do. But I guess if the motivation is, this is how I control people, then that probably yeah. helps that memorization. <laughs> and I think we see that in the Rex in her conversation because even though she doesn't use the Bible in that conversation, we see how she can, with her words, take control of a conversation and make it go the direction she wants it to go. And you look like the bad guy if you fight her. Because everything she's saying is completely reasonable. She probably takes that James passage about how the tongue is evil. <laughs> she's like, oh, this, yeah, I can see that. Oh, man. Look at what I can control with my tongue. <laughs> Bev. 
Uh, and I think we're reaching the end of our time, but before we're up, I did want to come back to Riley um, at least one last time. And then I'll, I, you might have a couple other things that you want to hit on, but there's this conversation with Riley and Aaron after church where Riley gives this very defeatist uh, kind of monologue, not a full monologue in a Flanagan sense, because we all know Mike Flanagan likes himself a monologue. Uh, there are a lot. <laughs> but he basically says, uh, and this is going to be somewhat a quote and somewhat a paraphrase. Um, I have no purpose at all, serving no purpose to anyone, just living. That's the worst part because I shouldn't be alive. So I don't know what did, what I do here. I eat, sleep. S word. I don't know. Walk home, eat dinner, wait out this effing storm. Like he literally, like it's very defeatist. Like he's like, I don't even know like what my purpose in life is. I think I should be dead. Uh, and, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, the only near term goal, I only have a near term goal, which is there's a storm tonight. And Aaron tells him having a near term goal is enough. Mm -hmm. And then you wake up tomorrow and you get a new near term goal. Right. And that's how you live day by day for now. Right. To survive. Uh, but I think this monologue sets up Riley's whole character arc. Uh, this lack of purpose and this, uh, it's not quite suicidal ideation. There's a word for it. There's a word where it's not suicidal ideation, but it's like, you just think you should be alive. Like you're not going to kill yourself, but you're not going to help yourself. Right. I don't know, and I feel like his dream of him sitting in the boat in oh, the middle the prophecy. of yes. yeah, the middle of the ocean. Like, I feel like that captures probably how he feels. And so he's like, yeah, no, this is my life. Me just sitting. I'm just here. Nothing's going on. Nothing's happening. Nothing should be happening. Yeah. Like, I feel like, and you, we, we find out why he has, well, not why, we but we why. find out why, <laughs> we don't know why he has these, these visions, but we find out it's not just a dream. It's a vision yeah. of later on. Yeah. And, and I mean, so yeah, Riley, that sets the tone for his whole character for all the episodes he's in. Uh, but the visions, like he has a vision of himself alone in a boat. Obviously, he has visions of Tara Beth. He's haunted by her. Yeah. Not, she's not a literal ghost. Yeah. And I feel like he doesn't even... So, at first, I think he's, a little, like, traumatized by her. I mean, he's traumatized the whole time. But, like, you see when he first sees her in the prison. But then you also see, like, as he's going to bed, like, in his own bed, he's just, like, the expectation of seeing her. Just like, yep. And there she is. I can sleep now. Like... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but then he also sees the walls of the church, like the door of the church. Uh, and it's open. From the inside. Yeah. Uh, and it's bloody handprints all, all around it. Yeah. Uh, and we know that that's a scene from later in the series. Right. Because uh, we've seen the whole series. But so these are, other than Terabeth, these are premonitions of the future. Mm -hmm. uh, which is really interesting. And we, we talked about this in the other podcast for a bit about... Um, Riley and how he still seems to have some sort of supernatural ability uh, and or fruit of the spirit gift, spiritual gift. Well, one thing I noticed this time, um, so when he, like when they're in the church and they're getting up to get the sacrament, like he stands up, which I found weird because they had discussed that he wasn't going. Yeah. And then he sits back down. But then when he sits down, the react, like the body language that he has like, it doesn't seem like, oh, I'm not doing this. Like, someone who is like, it doesn't, like, this doesn't matter. Like, nothing helps. Like, it's the body language of someone who looks like they almost don't feel worthy. Mm. Like, he almost looks, like, ashamed or sad that he's not joining, that he's not partaking. Like, and not like, oh, I wish I was, just kind of like, but not like a, oh, I was bad and I should, like, he almost, it almost seems like I'm not good enough and I'm not worthy to be part of this like I killed someone like that's the kind of posture that he has like and he doesn't watch he just kind of like it's not for someone who has supposedly abandoned their faith like the reactions and the emotions that he t tends to show in that scene doesn't like they don't match for me like it should be like I would expect for this to not bother him at all because like this is not his life anymore 
and it's fine. But instead he kind of like, he's got his shoulders kind of hunched and he like looking down and not wa- not really watching what everyone's doing. And so it makes me wonder if like, there's a little bit of like conviction of the Holy Spirit. They're like this, you should like, you should be doing this. But then he's like, no, I can't like, I cannot partake in this. I am a terrible human being. Like I do not deserve to be in any part of this. Yeah. And you know, this, the standing up could definitely have been habit regardless. Even, yeah. You know, with the conversation with his dad uh, and, you know, thinking about it, his mom, his mom wants him to take it. Right. But from a, from a good Catholic sense, he would, even if he was emotionally in the right place, he yeah. would still have had to have gone to confession, yeah, which he hadn't, which done. he hadn't done. Uh, so uh, I don't know if his mom would be that surprised for the first one. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely think maybe like the second or third one, she'd be like, you've had plenty of time. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> honestly, she let it go pretty quickly. Yeah. Like she's like, Oh, come on. And then he was like, no, no. And like, I think when like the dad was kind of like, Oh no, let's go. Like he's not coming. Like she kind of was like, oh, okay. And then moves up. so I feel like, yeah, she probably was like, yeah, he's not really like, he didn't do what he needed to do in order to be able to do this. So yeah. I, I can let it go. Like she kind of, she didn't protest too much or didn't seem too distraught that yeah. he sat back down. Yeah. And, you know, for the Protestants in the audience, uh, the Catholic communion is not open, right? Uh, to take Catholic communion, you're supposed to be Catholic and you're supposed to be in good standing. Uh, and that includes, you know, confession. Uh, so, uh, for example, as Protestants, if we were at a Catholic church, we should not take communion mm-hmm. uh, because we are not Catholic. Because uh, Catholic communion is a sacrament, and it means something different to the Catholics than it means to the Protestants. Because uh, Protestants don't believe in uh, transubstantiation, which is a word. <laughs> uh, like you know, it's not until you start delving deep into theology that you get to these like uh, five syllable words that are too big. So uh, yeah, we have the storm at the end of the episode. Um, Riley thinks he sees Father Paul on the beach. He chases after him. We later learn that's the vampire. Uh, well, and I feel like this says a lot about how Father Pruitt and, like, Father Pruitt and Riley's sorry, relationship. Father Pruitt, yes. Yeah, their relationship. Because Riley's very concerned when he sees him, when he thinks he sees him out there. Yes. I mean, And he runs, like, no one else in the house goes after him. But yeah. he goes after him to try and, like, help him. So, like, clearly there's been, there's an established, like, these these two people were very close. Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, I was thinking this time watching it, at least the vampire doesn't kill Riley yet. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I also want to know how, like, Father Paul and the vampire, like, do they have conversations? Or is it like, you can't go out without wearing clothes? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Is it like, you can only eat wild animals? You got to go to the upper. Does it like, understand? Do like, like, I don't. There are a lot of questions about Father Paul's relationship to the vampire friend. Yes. But. <laughs> um, and then uh, when the episode ends, they wake up and the storm's over and the beach is full of dead cats. Which they set up when um, Warren and the friends were at the uppers. And he says, anything that's on this island washes down to our backyard when it rains. Like, Yes. Yes. Uh, and the next episode will open up exactly where this one left off. But we're going to talk about episode two next time. So is there any... Thing we missed, Rachel, or anything you want to highlight uh, before we wrap up? I I think we talked about everything I had written down. Um, yeah, I just have other random notes, but we don't <laughs> we don't need to talk about them here. But I think like I really appreciate the first episode and how they like lay the groundwork for all the future episodes, introducing us to all these characters and what their personalities are like, even foreshadowing what's going to happen in the later episodes. And it's like the first time I watched it, um, it was just like, I'm like, of course this is an episode. It's great. But like knowing after, after having watching it, after having watched it several times, I can see them. I can see Flanagan laying down the foundation for everything that happens after this. And so I really appreciate um, how well he's able to um, string the story together and make it. So the things that happen later on, makes sense you're like oh yeah 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 i think uh he's a very good storyteller yeah and that this is uh his best work yet yeah 
look forward to the fall of the House of Usher. Yeah. I always, like, one thing I really like about him is that he always has that one episode that just, like, blows my mind. And he's just like, that's what that man is. And like, or, like, this is beautiful. Like, chef's kiss. Like, for me, I think it's episode five where that happens. Mm. We can talk about it then. But, like, like yeah, he's... I'm I'm very impressed with him, and I cannot wait for Fall of the House of Usher later this year. Yes. Uh, but that's it for today. Uh, so uh, next time we'll be picking up with episode two. Thank you for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for having me. mentioned, Rachel will be back when we continue our discussion of Midnight Mass, but next month on September 15th, the topic will actually be the historical comedy Dairy Girls, which for U.S.-based listeners can be found streaming on Netflix. Thank you so much for everyone who tuned in for our full first episode of Mandemonium. You can find me, Mandy, on Twitter at brown underscore Aja, that's A-J-A-H. You can also find the podcast on Twitter at Mandemonium Pod, and we also have a Facebook page. Theme music for this podcast was created by Skips a Beat Music. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you come back next time.